Take out your Bibles and turn back to Genesis 12, page 8 in the Pew Bible. We're going to focus on verses 4 through 9 this morning. Last week, uh, we began the second part of a long series through the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings. And at the beginning of a new year, we looked at another beginning. We saw the great sinfulness of the world, including the great sinfulness of Abram himself. He was not a good guy. He was not a believer or a seeker after God. He was a pagan, a worshiper of false gods. And so we began by considering the fact that Abram's beginning and your beginning is nothing but sin. So sin is the start. Sin is our start. The Bible is clear. All have sinned. There is none righteous, not even Abram. So we're not studying the life of Abram for the next five or six months because he's so great. We're studying him because while he was yet a sinner, though he did not understand or seek after God, God sought and chose and saved and blessed him in an amazing way. And so our second point then was that God's call is nothing but pure grace. Out of seemingly nowhere, out of all the darkness of chapter 11, God's gracious call breaks in at the beginning of chapter 12. He comes to Abram, he reveals himself to Abram, and he makes these grand and wonderful promises to Abram. That was chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. We summed up the promises under three headings. He promises him a blessing, a seed, and a land. God is coming to him and saying he is going to do these amazing things for Abram. It's not about what Abram is going to do. It's about what God is going to do for and in and through Abram. And he's doing, remember, what he said he was going to do all the way back in chapter 3, verse 15. We fell, we sinned right away. God comes, though, and speaks grace and makes promises. The promise of a seed of one who is going to come, one who would crush the head of Satan. And now, here is God again, nine chapters later, promising a seed. One to come. One that is going to set things right, defeat sin, defeat Satan, and save his people. Like, that's what this whole story is about. That's what the story of Abram is about. What God is going to do through him to bring about the Redeemer to rescue his people. So he's made the grand promises. Now, the rest of the story is the tracing of those promises. And then the tension and the difficulty, sometimes what seems like the impossibility of the fulfillment of those promises as one obstacle after another tries to get in the way. And that's what we're going to start looking at this morning. God's made his promises. Well, now how does Abram respond to those promises? God has made promises to you. How do you respond to those promises, especially in the face of difficulty and obstacles? Especially sometimes when it seems like, oh, those promises, as wonderful as they seem, at the current moment, maybe seem like they have little to do with and basically no effect on the circumstances surrounding you, those circumstances that are threatening to strangle you. What do you do then? How do you live in the gap between the making of the promises and then the actual fulfilling of the promises when it sometimes just seems like maybe they aren't going to ever be fulfilled? Well, let's turn to this text and see. That's what the whole story is going to be about Our third point last week was supposed to be your response is nothing but faith. Well, now we're going to be able to expand that out and look at the nature of faith in greater detail. And Abraham is perfect 
for that. We read just a moment ago, part of Romans 4. In that whole chapter, Abraham is called father seven times. He is called the father of faith. So we've seen our sin. We've seen what God does in response, grace. Well, now let's see how we are to respond to that grace. Let's look at the nature of faith by looking at the life of Abraham. On Tuesday, when I thought I was going to do this whole chapter, I had a great, I had five points and I titled the sermon, Five Facets of Faith. That sounds so good. Um, But then I couldn't get it done and so you lost the good title. We only got three and then we're going to come back and look at Abraham's struggle um, next time. So first, just three points this morning. What is faith? What does it do? Or three basic things. I want to be try to be simple. We're going to see that faith trusts. We're going to see that faith obeys. And then we're going to see that faith worships. So let's first go and read the text and then we'll begin to walk through it. Genesis chapter 12. Let's start in verse 1 and I'll read uh, verses 1 through 9. Uh, pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you this morning. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. If you would, bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. Thank you that as we just read, that you are the God who speaks, and that you're the God who makes promises, and that you're speaking, and that your promise-making are life-giving. So, Father, we thank you for the life that we have in Christ that is entirely uh, of you and of your grace. And we ask now uh, for more grace as you would help us to hear your word and to hear it well. I pray that we would be attentive um, to what it is that you have to tell us this morning. I pray that we would understand faith we would understand how good and gracious you have been to give us the gift of faith and what it then looks like for us to love you, to follow you, and obediently respond uh, to you. Father, help me as I seek to faithfully proclaim your word. Um, Apart from you, we can do nothing. So we ask um, that you uh, would take this word and that you would open our eyes and that you would help us to see and understand and love you. Father, we pray that you would change us and make us more like Jesus. Help us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so verses 1 through 3 last week were the grace, God's unearned, unmerited, demerited favor, the goodness and blessing that God is going to bestow on Abram, though he doesn't deserve it, and though he does nothing 
for it. So we started with God and we started with grace. Well, the question then becomes, right, if God has made these amazing promises of blessing, if those blessings, as we saw, are ultimately found in Christ, well, how do we, how do we get them, right? How do we respond to and receive the benefits and the blessing? Well, faith is the answer. But we need to explain what that is. We need to define faith and make sure we understand what it is because there's just a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to faith these days. It was Mark Twain that infamously said, faith is believing something you know ain't so. Uh, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins writes, faith is belief in spite of or even perhaps because of the lack of evidence. Uh, his co-horseman uh, Sam Harris defines faith like this. Faith is the license that religious people give one another to keep believing when reasons fail, to keep believing in the absence of evidence. Faith is a reason why you do not need to give reasons for what you believe. There's Dawkins and there's two of them. I don't know if you've heard of the four horsemen of the supposed new atheism, which was supposed to be a really big deal about 10 years ago, and it wasn't. Um, there was nothing new under the sun, and nobody pays attention to them anymore. Um, but we saw last time that Abram does something when God commands and calls. And we saw that he follows and he obeys. That's going to be our second point. But that implies that there is something going on, some sort of belief or trust. And that's how we're simply going to define faith. Even in those wrong definitions of faith, they understood that faith is belief. It is trust in a word that has been given. So verse 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him. That's pretty big. God has made big promises to Abram. He's asked big things of Abram. Pack everything up. Leave everything you've known behind. Leave your country. Leave your family, your house, and go wherever I will show you. Well, to actually then do that is to demonstrate that you trust the one who has called you and commanded you. Right? Faith is believing trust, or it is trustful belief. It's not belief in spite of evidence or with a lack of evidence. No, it's actually the exact opposite. It is belief because of evidence, overwhelming evidence. God has spoken to Abram. Right? This is no blind belief. This is trust in the God who speaks. He speaks to Abram, and then in verse 7, we see that he has in some way shown himself to Abram. It says there in verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram. And so, in light of the word and in light of the appearing, Abram trusts God. And that's what faith is. Let's get a few good definitions to balance the bad definitions. Here's the 1689, the, the second London Baptist confession. Listen to chapter 14. I love how it starts. The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe so that their souls are saved, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts. Faith is produced by the ministry of the Word. By this faith, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the Word, recognizing it as the authority of God himself. They also perceive that the Word is more excellent than any of every other writing and everything else in the world. I love that. The Word is more excellent than everything else in the world. Because it displays the glory of God, the excellence of Christ, the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit. So they are enabled to trust their souls to the truth believed. Here's the summary part. I'll skip some of it. The principal acts of saving faith 
focused directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. That's a wonderful definition. I wish we could just take the rest of our time to unpack that. But here, here's one of the things that I've been emphasizing a lot lately. It's good to be clear with, what, with you about what I believe about God's word. And I've been harping on this because it's so important. The first thing the confession says there is the grace of faith. The Shorter Catechism, question 86, what is faith? Uh, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace by which we receive and rest on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. It's so important to get. Faith is a saving grace, meaning it itself is a gift of God. Right? We talked about the grace last week. God's call is nothing but grace, and that call that is nothing but grace includes the very faith by which we respond to and receive that grace. I've been trying to make this very clear with the simple three-word phrase from R.C. Sproul that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. In other words, John 3, you must be born again. That's regeneration. What I'm saying, because I think this is what the Bible is saying, is that Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. That comes first. His work comes first. Before you can do anything, you must be born again. And that is only a gracious work of God by His Holy Spirit. So faith, as it is so frequently taught today, is basically taught as a work. This is how I grew up understanding faith. You do this thing, right? you choose and make your decision, and you have faith. Then God will see that you have made uh, that decision and that faith. God will then respond uh, to you, and you will be born again. No, that's not it. That makes faith a work. I want to be clear on this. That's not what the confession is saying. Faith is a gift. It's a grace. Uh, it is a work, in a way, as Calvin calls faith, the principal work of the Holy Spirit. It's the principal work of the Holy Spirit. He gives it to us and enables us to use it. So as most of us were taught, faith finds its source in us. It is the work that we do. But notice that in calling faith the principal work of the Holy Spirit, Calvin is agreeing with what we have just said. Instead of, said, instead of faith finding its source in us, faith finds its source only in the Holy Spirit. It is his gift to us. It is the gift of God. And so here's Here's Calvin's definition of faith. He says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Here's Luther's definition. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Such confidence and knowledge of God's grace makes you happy, joyful, and bold in your relationship to God and all creatures. And I love that. Right? Bold, certain trust in God's grace that makes you happy and joyful in God. That's faith. Faith trusts God. And so as we just read in Romans 4, and as we'll see when we get to Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as 
righteousness. Right? Faith takes hold of God. It trusts Him. It's the instrument through which God gives us His grace and unites us to Jesus Christ. It lays hold to the promises of God and does not let go. It believes God. That's what faith does. And so the first question you need to be asking yourself is, it's pretty simple, is do you trust God? Is it a living, bold trust that is willing to risk everything uh, so confident it is in God's promise? Is it a happy, joy-producing trust in the promise-making and promise-keeping God? He has promised Abram wonderful blessings. And he has promised you wonderful blessings. Do you trust him to deliver? By going out, by doing what God has told him to do, Abram is demonstrating that he trusts God. But that's not all that it does. Number two, we also will then see that faith obeys. We already read verse four as an example of Abram's trust. Again, this is how we know that Abram trusts God. He did what God said. He obeyed. Verse one, go from your country. Verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Faith obeys. And this is what is highlighted specifically about Abram in Hebrews chapter 11, right? The great hall of faith. Abram is at the very heart of that chapter over and over again. It says, by faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, Abel offered to God. By faith, Enoch was taken up. By faith, Noah constructed the ark. What does it say for Abram? Uh, Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he obeyed. And he did so, Hebrews emphasizes, not knowing where he was going. I had to resist making a Frozen 2 into the unknown joke here. Um, It's a good song, but I'll resist. Uh, But God has called him to go to this place that he doesn't know where it is, and he'll show him what that place is. And so in verses 4 and 5, we see Abram doing just that. He's 75 years old. He's not a young man. He takes his wife, his nephew, all of their people, all their possessions, and at the end of verse 5, it says they come to the land of Canaan. God calls, Abram follows, God commands, Abram obeys. It's a pretty important point these days because many divide faith and works in an unbiblical way. But you cannot do that. Faith and works in Scripture always go together. Now, again, we know that we are uh, not saved by works. We've just made the point that nothing we do contributes to our salvation. Even the faith by which we believe is a gift of God. We read Romans That's using Abraham as an illustration, an example of the truth of Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So not works, only faith. But the fact that works have nothing to do with our justification does not then mean that works have nothing to do with anything. Not at all. Works are actually critically important. And our favorite grace-faith passage even makes this clear. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I couldn't be more clear. Not a result of works. But there's verse 10. Don't forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's, that's pretty important. It's important to know what you were created for. Design matters. Purpose matters. Christian, what were you created for? Verse 10, for good works. Not meritorious good works, not good works that save us, but God saves us for good works. Works he has prepared beforehand. So even they are, in a sense, gifts. They are grace, but we are called to walk in them. Pretty simple, true faith is demonstrated through obedience. That's faith works. This is all James is doing in James chapter 2. It's really not that complicated. People act like James 2 is all complicated and confusing. It's not. Verse 18, he says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You can't see faith. There's no little part of me somewhere that I can show you. See, here's my faith Part. It's growing over. No, you can't see it. There's nothing to show. But you can see works. And that's all James is saying. Works demonstrate faith. They make faith visible. Works, of, works or deeds of obedience are the only visible evidence of saving faith. Which is why James says in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's not saying the works save you. He's saying if there's a faith that doesn't have works, it's not actually faith. Right? Because faith demonstrates itself through works. J.C. Ryle, in his book Holiness, writes, Grace that cannot be seen is no grace at all. Isn't this an echo of what James is saying in James chapter 2? Faith that cannot be seen is no faith at all. Show me your faith. It is works of obedience that will show it. Abram trusts God. And then he acts on that trust. Right? He, he follows he obeys God's word. And so this is part of what faith is and does, which means that if you claim to have faith, if you claim to be a Christian, but you are not obeying, well, you may not actually have the faith that you claim to have. We're not talking about perfection. That's not what I'm saying. We're talking about a growing, progressive obedience to the God that has saved us. Faith without works, without obedience, is dead. It's, this shouldn't be complicated. When God's grace gets a hold of us, he changes us drastically. And this is just what any real relationship does. You cannot have an intimate relationship without it changing your life. I'm very thankful that none of you knew me 12 years ago. Uh, there's not a single person, in this, unless there's some strange visitor I haven't seen, uh, there's not a single person in this room that knew me 12 years ago. I met Melissa in February of 2008. Um, I thought she was going to be teaching kids. Baining stepped up and saved the day. She's home with the sick kids. I love when she's not here because I can say anything I want. And I just, I know that none of you are going to go tell her. Um, so, you know what's happened to me since February of 2008, since I met Melissa? Change. Constant, desperately needed change. Absolutely. Praise God that I am a very different person than I was 12 years ago. Yes, again, I know it's him, and I know it's God and all his grace, but it's him working through means, and in this instance, it is the means of Melissa, and I desperately needed that. I am thankful, and you should be thankful, that I am not the same as I was in 2008. 
We had a guy who went here years ago, and he made the mistake of telling me once that he just wanted to find a girl who would accept him as he is and try not to change him. I was just sitting there thinking, like, brother, that's like the last thing that you need. Like, you desperately need someone who will change you because like, you're a mess. And because I'm a mess. Like, relationships change us. That's what they do. I love, I like uh, the comic, Jim Gaffigan. I think he's pretty funny. He's pretty clean, usually. He's Catholic. So I keep, he lives in the West Village, and I keep hoping I'll run into him so I can share the gospel with him. Um, but I like him because he seems like he's a really good dad, and he really loves and values his family. He's got five kids. I want to try to catch him. Uh, I don't know. Um, but I, I know what it's like to be in the city with a big family. People look at you funny. And so he always gets asked why he has so many kids. And he says, I believe each of my five children has made me a better man. So I figure I only need 34 more kids to be a pretty decent guy, right? Like that's, it's humorous and it's funny, but it's true. There's an important kernel of truth there. God uses relationships to shape us and to mold us and to change us. Can you imagine if after 12 years with Melissa, 10 of them married to her, it hadn't changed me? Oh, yes, yeah, we're married, but, you know, I don't let it affect my life. Uh, it doesn't change how I spend my money. It doesn't change how I spend my time. No, I don't talk to her too much or, or listen to her too much. But when I need something like dinner or laundry, I'll go kind of talk with her or something. Uh, that's about it. No, you'd think that was pretty messed up. But isn't that exactly how many people treat their relationship with the Lord? Oh, yeah, you know, I know him and I love him. But, eh, you know, how much difference does it kind of really make? No, it's because of a mis mistaken understanding of faith. Yes, faith is belief. It is trust in God. But it is belief in God that links us to him. Remember, union with Christ so unites us to Christ that it transforms us and it makes us new. Like any good relationship with a person that is better than you, they make you better. Well, God is the perfect person. And so you cannot be in relationship with him without it utterly transforming you, right? For starters, you were dead, and now you are alive. And that life, that life shows itself. That life shows itself in love and obedience uh, to God. Faith must obey. And that then brings us to the third and final point. Faith worships. Look at verse 6. Abram has obediently followed God's call. He has arrived in the land of Canaan. He comes to Shechem. Shechem is sort of like kind of right in the heart, in the center of the land. He comes to what appears to be an important place there, the Oak of Morah. More on that in a moment. But I want you to first notice the last phrase of verse 6. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Listen, this isn't just filler. This isn't just some random observation because he's trying to get his word count up or something. No, God has made promises. He has said, go from your land to the land that I will show you. Now Abraham has arrived in that land. God has reaffirms his promise in verse seven to your offspring. I will give this land. But wait a second. The land's occupied. Somebody already possesses the land. So immediately, here's a pretty significant obstacle to the promise. I'm going to give this land to your people. The Canaanites were in the land. Obstacle. This, this is tension. How can uh, the promise of a land filled with your people be fulfilled when the land is already filled with another people? Remember, we said, oh, Sarai was barren. I'm going to give you a seed. The land was occupied. 
I'm going to give you the land. Isn't that just kind of exactly how God seems to like to work? And you need to know this ahead of time. It tends to be God's way to preface his great works with great difficulty. We're going to focus on our difficulty to trust him in the midst of that difficulty next time. But it helps to understand that he often does this. He makes grand promises and then he ordains grand difficulties and asks you to trust him and obey him as he works to bring about his grand promises in spite of those grand difficulties. And notice in all the promises that God makes to Abram, he never promises him that everything will be easy. And he never promises that to you. But he does promise that he will do what he says, even in the face of great difficulty, even when it may seem to you like the fulfillment is far off or even impossible. So Abram obeys. He does exactly what God says and comes exactly to the place God says, and he finds it filled, which makes his response all the more wonderful. Because still, in the face of the difficulty and the obstacle, Abram worships. Why? And don't miss this. It's because of verse 7. It's not just the promise. The promise is very important. Don't ever minimize the promise. But notice that the promise is accompanied, accompanied by the presence. Then the Lord appeared to Abram. That's why Abram worships. God is there. God is with him. And this is the key to facing all of the tension and all of the difficulty and struggle to follow. All that has and will come into your life, this is the key, knowing that God is with you. It's so seemingly simple to say, but so surprisingly difficult to live. This is why Psalm 23 is, is the most famous psalm. There's many reasons, but I think this is the heart of it. For you are with me. That's, that's it. And how much of our fear and our anxiety and our depression and everything bad is a result of forgetting this simple yet profound truth. Christian, God is with you. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what your circumstances seem to say right now. If you are in Christ, then God is with you. And this is the covenant. Covenants get all confusing. We'll really tackle this when we get to Genesis 15. But the whole point of the covenant is for God to be with his people. Covenant is about communion. Covenant is about relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. Covenant is how God is with you. And if you have been brought into the new covenant by grace, through faith, in Christ, then God is with you. Nothing can change that. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Tribulation? Nope. Distress? Nope. Persecution? Nope. Famine? Keep that one in mind for next time. But still, nope. Nakedness? Danger? Sword? No. Nothing. And are those all the potential obstacles? No, Paul keeps going on in Romans 8. Not even death, nor life, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. He is with you, and he is good. I'm very thankful that we start our services off with call to worships and just by getting the word. Oh, man, Peter did a great job, but the word did a better job. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 56, 9. It's just struck me. This, this is amazing. You skipped over. You don't even know what it is. It says, God is 
for me. What in the world? That doesn't make any sense. God should not be for me. Uh, if you knew me, you would not be for me. God is for me because of Jesus Christ. But because I'm in Christ, that makes now the God of the universe all powerful, almighty, all good, all everything. He's, he's for me. That's the most encouraging thing in the world, right? If that's true, nothing else matters. Why do I struggle so much to believe that that's true? He's with me, and then by God's grace, after a difficult night and a long day, not wanting to come and have to do things, I find God is for me. Oh, praise God for his word and for these promises. That's wonderful. So God is with Abraham. He has spoken to Abraham. He is present with Abraham. He is with you. He has spoken to you. So worship. Worship the God who is present and who promises. And that's what Abram does. Look back at it. Look back at verse 6. Abram's come to the Oak of Moreh. This, this area will come up a couple more times uh, in the Pentateuch. It's a significant spot. Why is it mentioned? Uh, well, in all likelihood, most people think that this must then be some sort of place of, of pagan worship. And the word more means, means teacher. And so many people think that this was probably some sort of oracle or some sort of pagan place where people came to hear from the gods and then to kind of worship the gods. So, so notice then what Abram's doing. In obedience to God, he comes to the land. He comes to a place of significance for the pagan occupiers of the land. And then Abram claims it for God. Verse 7. He doesn't worship on those things or do whatever they're doing there. He builds there an altar to the Lord, to, to Yahweh, to the one true God. He continues on further south, marking off the land. He's symbolically laying claim to it. He's taking a route similar to the one Israel take, will take hundreds of years later when they come back into the land that he has promised him. And Abram comes then between Bethel and Ai. And what does he do again? Verse 8, he builds an altar to the Lord. And he called upon the name of the Lord. Abram worships. How? Well, the altars. They're mentioned twice. Some people are really bothered by the fact that it only says Abram built the altar and that he didn't use uh, the altar. Well, that's, that's so. It would be like if I gave you a grand description of this amazing meal that Melissa cooked one night. Uh, these amazing roasted Brussels sprouts. By the way, did you know it's Brussels with an S, like named after the city? I didn't know that. I had to look that up. Uh, Brussels sprouts with sweet potatoes, her homemade mix of spices, brushed in red wine vinaigrette, Greek turkey meatballs, quinoa, tzatziki sauce. She makes this amazing meal that she has built and prepared. What if your comment then was, well, you never said you ate the meal. Well, no, of course I ate the meal. That's dumb. That's why you make a meal. I didn't have to tell you I ate the meal. She made it, and we ate it, and it was delicious. And that's why you build an altar. You build an altar to sacrifice. Abram worships God through sacrifice. And I don't think we often connect worship and sacrifice as much anymore. We connect worship with singing, and often our main concern with singing is our own felt experience of that singing. Scripture doesn't do that. It directly connects worship with sacrifice. Do you know the first time in the Bible that the word worship is used? It's coming up, and it's in Genesis 22 Five, the, the climax of the Abraham narrative, the ultimate obstacle to the promise. God calls Abraham and he commands him. Hey, remember that seed, that son, that everything that I promised to you? Hey, take that son, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering, a sacrifice. And what does Abram tell his servants that they're going to do? He says, stay here 
I and the boy will go over there and worship. First use of the word uh, worship in the Bible. Uh, Worship through sacrifice. Why is that worship? What is it? Well, worship is simply our right response to God. It used to be worth-ship. It is ascribing worth. Right? We all worship something, whatever is worth the most to us, whatever we love and value the most. We worship that thing. So worship, most simply defined, is supposed to be our response to the person and the work of God. It is seeing his worth and then responding accordingly. And Abram does that through sacrifice. Why? Well, there are many different sacrifices, but at the heart of all of it is the fact that sin demands punishment. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. But remember the first thing that God did after Adam and Eve sinned. He covered them. He clothed them with animal skins, meaning we had to kill an animal. Something died in their place and then they were covered by its death. That's what sacrifice is about. It's about atonement. It's about the offering of another as a substitute. And Abram is here acknowledging that. He is recognizing God's provision of a substitute, of a way for him to be right with God. God can't be with sin. So God makes a way and that way is sacrifice. And Abram gets it. He gets what is at the very heart of the gospel that we so love and lean on. The gospel that is the good news of what God has done to rescue us. That he has sent for us a substitute. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on our sin and to die in our place. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the promise that you need trust. That's the grace, the death of Christ in our place in which you need to place your faith. And then in response, you worship. As Abram does here, you express your gratitude. And Abram does it through the literal offering of an animal. He gives up something of great worth, of great value. He sacrifices it as a demonstration that he finds God to be of most value. That's Worship. It's ascribing worth to God, not just in what we say, not just in the songs that we sing, but in our entire lives. It is delighting in that worth and displaying that worth. Worship is ascribing and assigning to God his true value. It is valuing and treasuring him above all else. And listen, if you actually do that, it's going to affect what you do with your time and with your money. It's going to affect what you focus on and what you live for. True faith always demonstrates itself in the worship of God. A a full-orbed entire life worship. We don't just trust Him, we treasure Him. We don't just obey Him, but we we adore Him. That's what it means to worship. The Puritan, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, Rare jewel of Christian contentment. I've referenced it a few times. He says that we worship God in active obedience by doing what pleases God. And that was our previous point. Faith obeys. Right? So we, we worship God by obeying God. Now, obedience is not something separate from worship. I've divided these two points up for clarity's sake, but they go together. Obedience is Worship. If you love me, you will do what I say. You don't just worship him by singing songs. You worship God by obeying him. Again, we've already talked about that. 
Burroughs goes on. He says, by passive obedience, we do as well worship God by being pleased with what God does. I love that. Are you pleased with what God does? Are you pleased with what God is doing in your life? Are you pleased with God himself? Worship is not just grumbly and grudgingly obeying, but not liking it. Worshiping is, is loving God and thus loving all that this perfectly wise and good God does. Are you well pleased with what he does? Because what he does is always good. And he has promised in his perfect, unbreakable word that he is working all things together for your good. So why wouldn't you be pleased with those all things, even if they are currently difficult things, knowing that ultimately they are going to bring about wonderful things. This light and momentary suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We've got to learn to compare momentary and eternal. We've got to learn that eternal is a lot bigger and more important than momentary. I struggle to do that, and I get so caught up and obsessed with the momentary, while here's the eternal, momentary, eternal glory is coming. You worship God by being pleased with what he does. Abram is pleased. He's come into the land. He has no son, and the land is filled. And yet, Abram is pleased with what God does, and so he worships he sacrifices, it says, he, he calls on the name of the Lord, which is another phrase uh, for worship. That's faith. He has trusted, that trust has demonstrated itself in obedience, and that obedience has led to worship. Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. This is a great opportunity to do that. You say you have faith. Okay, you say you prayed the sinner's prayer, you've, you've responded to an altar call or whatever. Okay, not concerned about that. I'm concerned about now. You've seen what faith is. Does the faith that you claim to have give evidence, again, however small and perfectly, of these three things? Are you trusting in the Lord today? And are you growing in obedience to the Lord today? Are you worshiping the Lord today? Are you well pleased with the Lord today? Because that's what faith does. And we'll never do any of those things perfectly. We will see that next time as Abram's faith falters and, and God's faithfulness does not. Uh, the good news is that God always performs his promise. He always remains faithful to his word. So you need to see that goodness and you need to see that faithfulness. You need to see the amazing promises he has made and rest and rejoice in that and in him. Because that's what faith does. It loves and it trusts, and it follows God. So cling to the promises of God and the God of the promises, and do that by fixing your heart on Jesus Christ, by resolving to seek him and know him above everything else. Commit to giving him more of your time and attention. Have you failed your New Year's resolutions yet? Uh, the gym's starting to slowly get a little bit less crowded in week two. I'm very thankful for that, right? Can you commit to giving a little bit more time to the Lord? Guys, we just, we, we make time for the things that we love. I have no time, no problem making time for reading and hanging out with my kids and doing things that I desire and care about. We sacrifice for the things that we love. I made the mistake of eating cashews last night. So I spent 30 minutes in the shower picking out cashews at about one in the morning tonight of my daughter's hair. It was a mess, but I love her. 
But I don't care. Because right? she's wonderful and I'll do anything for her because I sacrifice for the things that I love. Right? Do we do that for Jesus Christ? Because he's so good and he is so worth it. He is the object of our faith. He is our hope and he is our joy. Let me close again with the last part of the 1689's explanation of faith again. I love this so much. This is what faith is and does. The principal acts of saving faith focus directly on Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, for eternal life, for everything. Faith focuses directly on Christ, who is our everything. That is what faith does, and that is how faith responds to God's grace. Trust, obey, love, delight, and worship the Lord. If you would bow with me, and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your grace and your kindness to us even this day. Thank you for the gift of nice, warm weather in this building and this place to come and to be with brothers and sisters in Christ and to get to sing your praises together and to get to fellowship with one another, to get to hear from you because you speak, Lord, and you speak through your word. Father, help us, our focus to be not only, to be not on Abraham, to be not first on ourselves, but to be upon you, the life-giving God, the promise-making God, the faith-giving God, and help us to delight in the fact that you have done everything for us in Jesus Christ. But Father, we want that to change us. Father, we want those truths to overwhelm us and to affect our lives. Um, we want the relationship that we claim to be in with you um, to make us different and new and make us more like you. So, Father, I pray that you would do that now through your word. I pray that you would encourage. I pray that you would challenge. I pray that you would uh, convict. I pray that you would do all of these things, helping us uh, to fix our eyes on your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our everything. Help us to see him as our everything. Help us to love him and know him and delight in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.